Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. The Stacks September book club pick is The Undocumented Americans, and our guest today is the author of that book, Carla Cornejo Villavicencio. Don't worry, there are no spoilers on the episode. It's just a conversation to get you excited to read the book and a dive deeper into the process of how it came to be. As a reminder, everything we discuss on today's show can be found in the link in the show notes. You've heard me say this week in and week out, but I could not make this show if it weren't for the Stacks Pack. Those are the people who contribute monthly on Patreon and earn perks like shout outs on the show and our virtual book club. If you want to be a part of this awesome community, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks. This week, I am saying an extra big thank you to Amy Davies, Yolanda Enoch, Miller Cassidy, Jenny, Elena Aguilar, Mona Pritchard, Margaret Thornton, Melly Hooker, Terry Ham, Carol Walker, Bradford Fillon, Lauren, and Christine Zhang. Thank you all so, so much. All right, let's dive in. All right, everybody, I am so excited today. We are here with our September book club author, the author of The Undocumented Americans, Carla Cornejo Villavicencio. Carla, welcome to The Stacks. Hi, I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited that you're here. We're going to talk about your book um, just for people at home listening because we are doing a deep dive into this book at the end of the month. And I know you're all reading along. There's going to be no spoilers today. We're just kind of going to talk about the book a little bit more and give you more context so that you know you have something to look forward to in two weeks when we talk about the book with Lupita. So Carla, in about 30 seconds or so, can you kind of just tell us about the book? Okay, so I will start with a spoiler. It's about (laughs) undocumented people. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's a mix of uh, personal essay and reporting, which is a genre that I work on and I'm constantly trying to perfect for myself. Um, And... um, and, and um, you know, as a legacy that I want to leave behind to my dog. And, um, yeah, I think it's unlike anything that's ever been written about uh, immigrants. It's It really is. It's totally different. I have to say, just to start off this conversation, it 
it really changed the way that I was reflect the way that I'm reflecting on my thoughts and opinions about immigrants and immigration and the systems that are in place in America. And while I knew they were deeply racist and I knew that people were being treated poorly, this book really helped me to see a more complete human humanity of people that have come to this country for a myriad of reasons. So I, I want to just say thank you for for doing that and helping to make someone who like, you know, I like to consider myself to be quote unquote woke. And I really was having a reckoning with myself of like, you're bullshit and you've not done a lot of work around, you know, unpacking your thinking. So thank you for that and for writing this book, because I think that other people, I mean, I've heard other people have had that same experience. What I'm curious about is why did you feel compelled to write this story now? Well, I wrote it, I started writing it in 2016 after Trump won. And I I really did not want to write about immigration, hmm. partly for mental health reasons, sure. uh, for reasons that I predicted and have come true. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and um, partly because, you know, I just, it just felt a little weird to me to be like, I'm undocumented and, I, and I'm going to write about being undocumented. Like, no shade to anyone who does this, but it just felt to me like it was a little bit predictable and on the nose. And I'm just like the kind of like girl who's always been like, I, oh, I'm not reading Harry Potter because everyone's reading Harry Potter. I've never you know, read Harry I, Potter. You know, and like my parents are immigrants and I've like lived, breathed, suffered, bled immigration my entire life. And I felt like at the time contemplating the American dream, I had the opportunity to go to Harvard. And I thought, you know, in order to really kind of like make it in America, I should become like a beekeeper or something. <laughs> You know, like making my living out of writing about undocumented people's pain as an undocumented person seemed like I was staying within that system that my parents had paid so much to uh, get me out of. And so it was it was hard to make that choice. But I had uh, finished Harvard uh, and DACA didn't exist that yet. And I had nowhere to go. I had written professionally since I was 15 and all of my classmates were getting media jobs. And I went to Yale um, to get a PhD that I did not want um, for the health insurance and because it would buy me time. And hopefully in that time, the DREAM Act would pass. And my father was, I remember being 13 and my father was like, the DREAM Act is going to pass by the time you graduate high school. Mm. And, um, and you know, going to grad school was great. I read hundreds of books. Um, I hated a lot of them, but I learned from every single one of them. I learned from my professors. I disagreed with a lot of professors. Um, and something I think when you're young is that when you're crafting out a voice for yourself, the first thing you do is you 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 realize what you don't like. Mm. You realize voices and and worldviews 
um, that you don't like, the genres that you don't like. And so at, well, first I did a lot of um, critiquing Latinx literature that I thought pandered to white audiences or that I thought had been manipulated by a publishing industry that had been manipulated by Hollywood. And so um, like I was open about going after classics like um, how the Garcia girls lost their accents and the house on Mango Street. I know they're classics, but they're also of their time. They're a snapshot in time. And so when they're still on syllabi being taught to Latinx kids now, I kind of side-eye the professors and I'm like, why? You know, unless you're treating them as historical artifacts, this is not what the kids should be reading. You know, um, and so I had lots of opinions. I was writing against a lot of things, but it was, um, I had read so much and I had been inspired by music and, and, and obviously experience um, that when, and of course I was a, I was a so-called dreamer and I didn't like that. I didn't like being called a dreamer. I didn't like the, 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 the rhetoric behind the movement. And so when Trump won, I knew that I had the ability in me to write something about undocumented people that um, only I could write. And I think that is the only reason to write something. Um, And I do say this as a way to call out white people who are good at writing, which is like, um, I went to a great school and I love books. And it turns out I'm a really good writer. I'm going to become a writer and write books. I don't feel like that's like a reason to become a writer. I feel like you become a writer because you have something to say and you have a perspective and you have a voice and you have something to contribute. And I feel like most of what I read like online is written by people who are writers because they can turn a sentence like they can turn right. a trick with a sentence right and that doesn't make me feel good and you can tell though as a reader you I mean you said you've read hundreds of books you can tell when someone is writing because they have something to say versus when someone is writing because they are talented at putting stringing words together I'm curious about your audience for this book and I ask because famously authors say, I write for myself, right? Like that's a refrain that we hear all the time. And I mean, I'm not a writer, so I can't speak to that, but I don't believe that that's true. Um, I don't, I don't believe that you can truly write for yourself because otherwise it's just a journal entry. You know, I feel like you have to be writing for something outside of yourself. There's some sort of acknowledgement that other people will read this work, whether you're writing for them or not. So I'm curious who you were writing for and who you were writing for and then how you felt about people who you weren't necessarily writing for reading your work, which is also part of putting art out into the world. I think commoners can write for themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So like, so like, okay. So I've had a lot of therapists and like, I'm a very mentally ill person. And, um, I'm also like aside from the mental illness, I'm a cancer And aside from the cancer, I'm Latina. And aside from, you know, there's just so many, I'm a very intense person. Okay. So a lot of people have been like, do you journal? And I'm like, I have never in my life journaled. I have never in my life written something for me 
if I write something, it's to publish, it's to get paid, it's for an audience. Like, why would I write for myself? Hmm. Like, why would I write? Why would I? Why would I do that? Right. Like, I am a performer. Right. You know, I, like, I feel does, you a hundred percent. Like, I know some drag queens do this, but they make fun of themselves when they do this. Like, I think I'm like a bio queen. You know, <laughs> like, would I put on a full face of drag makeup, cancel out my brows? stack my wigs and then like look at myself in the mirror and then do a 10 step skincare routine to to wash off my makeup right. and then while you're looking at yourself in the mirror because i write about immigration my family and intergenerational trauma like cry at myself in the mirror right. why the fuck would i do that like no of course i don't write for myself I write for an audience. I write for my editors and I write to make money for my family. So like the first person, the first people, the first, okay. So I have a very intense relationship with several editors that I have written for, for a long time. So the, I, I write to impress them. Okay. If I have an editor hmm. who I don't think is interesting, I will not be motivated to write for them because I don't respect them. I know I sound unlikable right now, but like my, my book editor right now for the undocumented Americans is uh, Chris Jackson. Ugh. And um, I write to impress him. I mean, what a dream. How could you not? I mean, that motivates me to sure. write better, to write good, to outsmart myself, mm. to top myself. Um, like I am, on in a one-sided rivalry with Ta-Nehisi Coates <laughs> to uh, be the 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 queen of Chris's heart. Sure. So, like, I try to produce the best writing that I possibly fucking can. I'm writing a YA novel now for Namrata Tripathi of Coquila Books. She is an icon of young adult literature. Hmm. I'm writing to impress her. I, I, and, and I'm writing um, a young adult book that I, I believe in fucking with genre. I believe in, in creating new genres. You know, sure. I believe it's sort of like when Beyonce does something, she's not like, how am I going to fit it into this box? Right. I believe that like as a writer, you have to look into every single medium of art and be like, how are people reinventing things? And so I'm doing a lot of creative things with the genre of the YA novel. I want to inspire editors who all they do is read for 18 hours a day and be like, wow, this feels like I just put like some like, uh, you know, those like candy sticks that like yeah. pop in your mouth. <laughs> like I want them to feel that way about my writing. So primarily I write for editors I respect. Sometimes I have an editor that I write for a magazine and I don't know them and um, I will write for uh, friends of mine that I respect. Um, Eileen Miles has become a friend of mine. And sometimes I'm like, Hey, Eileen, can I write this for you? And uh, just like, you don't have to read it. Like, can you just give me permission to pretend that I'm writing this for you? <laughs> wow. Because when I have Eileen in my mind, and I pretend I'm writing for them, um, I want to impress them, right. you know? So 
So like that helps me. And, and then my audience. So like when I first started writing the undocumented Americans, I thought my book, because this is the way um, I'm going to be careful how I word this publishing um, interpreted the book that I was going to deliver mm. without knowing who I was. Um, I, I felt that the people who were going to read my book were going to be like, with all due respect and without, with all love, like my sister-in-law, like my, what's the, some of my best friends, <laughs> are suburban white moms and book clubs. Um, and we are very close. Sure. But their book tastes are not my book tastes. Right. And um, they don't like that I curse in front of their children. Right. So we, we agreed to disagree. Right. Um, and I did not want my book to be a book that was loved by these book clubs um, and to have like book discussions around it and for them to close the book and feel inspired Mm. or to feel hashtag blessed mm. or to be like these poor people. They mm. suffer so much. They work so hard. Like I did not want that. So when I first started writing the book, I wrote, I wrote imagining an imaginary white audience hmm. that I was um, being mean to. Right. And then Chris was like, Chris was like, I'm not even going to edit this. <laughs> Are you writing for white people? <laughs> and I was like, maybe dad and he was like you need to get that out of your head and i have had to say this to every single writer that i've ever worked with you need to stop writing for an imaginary white audience who is your audience and i said you know during the first few months of the trump administration i carried around james baldwin's um a fire next time everywhere i went I felt like it could protect me. Like I felt like it was like carrying a rosary around. And I want that. I want my book to be that for um, immigrant youth and children of immigrants. And um, Chris was like, right for them. And that revolutionized the way I wrote. And there was a lot of pushback, not from Chris, although we had some disagreements um, but it was from like proofreaders, copy editors all along the way. People were like, are you sure you want to say this? This sounds really aggressive. This sounds really vulgar. Like, are you sure you want to say this? Like this, you might not want to say this publicly. Hmm. Um, because there's a, there's an expectation of what immigrant literature is supposed to sound like. Um, right. But I was writing for these immigrant kids who have had to keep their feelings like sewn, like sutured inside their chest, you know? Right, right. And have you heard from, from your target audience? Have you heard from them? Do, Do you feel like you did what you set out to do, I guess, is the question. Absolutely. If I wanted to write a book that was going to make me a lot of money, I would have written American Dirt. I'm perfectly capable of doing that. Sure. I have ghosts written for people. I have, uh, I, I can write whatever the fuck I want to write. I wanted to write a book for children of immigrants. I knew that was not going to be a bestseller. Um, my imprint printed a conservative 
number of books and we're on our third printing now. Wow. And I know this is my audience. I have not received many messages from uh, white women who are like, you're so inspirational, Carla. Um, It's, I wake up every morning with like so many DMs from, from brown kids and from, it's not just Latinx kids. I wake up uh, from DMs from, you know, Asian children of Asian immigrants, uh, from undocumented black immigrants um, who do not, who have been so confused during the Black Lives Matter movement because they don't fully feel a part of the immigrant rights movement because it's so coded Latinx mm-hmm. and and BLM has been so, um, in some areas on social media has been like a little bit unfriendly to immigrant rhetoric seeping in hmm. um, as trying to form a solidarity kind of thing. Right. And so they've reached out to me and I've like sent them books and I've been like, you have 11 million people who love you and a lot of them look like you. And a lot of them share your struggles, you know. Amadou Diallo was an immigrant. Right. And um, it's just so many people. I have, I have, at first it was really overwhelming. Like when I first started getting like dozens of messages from kids who uh, were suicidal or who said that this was the first time they felt like, they could admit to themselves feelings that they were too ashamed to even feel. Mm. And um, I had like a breakdown because I, I felt responsible for all of them. And I, and I wanted to tell all of them it was going to be okay, but that would, that's a lie. Sure. But it's emboldened a lot of them. You know, when I tell them to make boundaries with their parents, when I tell them, I mean, I give them as much advice as I can, but I also like on my Instagram, I teach, I like, I teach by example, which is like in my 31 years, I've learned that undocumented is my legal status. It is also, you know, my, my beat as a writer. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not what makes me interesting. Right. It's not what makes me lovable. It's not what makes me a writer. And it's not what makes my voice special. And I think that college entrance essays, writing workshops, white people have made a lot of undocumented youth feel like the reason you're special is because you're undocumented. And that can have a lot of psychic aftershocks in youth. And I want to m- let them know that uh, they contain multitudes. Yeah. I obviously can't speak to the experience of reading your book as a child of immigrants or as an undocumented child, but I can speak to the way in which you write and w- the the energy in your book and just I can imagine that if your story was my story, how powerful your words would be because your energy is so palpable in the pages. 
and and I and I've spoken to people who who are undocumented and who are children of immigrants who highly recommend your book. And so I I'm sure that you know some of that energy and some of the the insights and the vulnerability and just what you do in the book. I mean, it's just incredible. I'm like gushing because I'm having a hard time talking, but what you do and the emotion and the honesty and the vulnerability that you bring to it, I think, you know, I just, I am sure that it is for a lot of people there, um, the fire next time. I just, I have to imagine that you, you did it. Um, I do. That's really kind of you to say, thank you. Anytime. And you know, the thing is like, James Baldwin, you know, we read about him coming back from France and deciding that he was going to do this very painful thing, which he was going to be a witness and he was going to record and he was going to make a record of all of what was happening. I don't want to trigger anyone who's listening to this podcast, but he was very suicidal his whole life. It it took a very hard mental health toll on him. He attempted suicide multiple times. And we don't really, it's like there are some writers like Sylvia Plath and Sexton, Robert Lowell, we romanticize their suicidality and their mental illness because we, 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 we're like, they're fragile. Their fragility makes them like pale and sickly and made of porcelain and delicate. And we like that. But we want James Baldwin to be strong and we want him to be powerful. And that's an expectation that's placed on black people, especially, but all people of color. And so it's like when we think of like, you know, all of those like suffering writers and poets, we we are immediately like Sylvia Plath, Virginia right. Woolf. We don't think of James Baldwin and that's because we want him to be our hero. Right. And so I think that it also speaks to um, I'm someone who struggled with suicidality my whole life. And um, something that I saw as my book became more beloved in my community is that a lot of uh, readers were like, you're a badass. You're a superwoman. You're a superhero. You're like a chingona. You're like the strongest woman I've ever met. And there was this canonization of me as being uh, so, so strong, too strong. And I thought, um, you know, I, I'm actually, I've actually been very open about the fact that I'm um, in moments of crisis, I'm Tom Cruise scaling up a building <laughs> And I'll do anything to protect my family and my loved ones. And I can handle a crisis. But it's in like every other moment when like I drop a glass of water that brings me to tears. And that's that's trauma. That's PTSD from migration and racial trauma and all of that. And I think that's what we need to. Um, we need to see the humanity in our artists of color, especially women, like especially queer artists of color, like they're human. They suffer. They are strong, but their fragility is also weak, which, which it, their fragility is also part of what makes them ability to uh, experience sensation to such a degree that they can describe right. it. You know, it reminds me of like that bullshit that Lana Del Rey was saying about like, I'm so delicate and look at all of these women of color who are so strong and sexual. And it's like, 
like have you heard fka twigs's music like she's pretty delicate you know like we are allowed to be gentle um and so so that i was just reminded of that how like the narrative about me immediately became that i was superwoman and i was like that's not the truth guys and from people from people who have read your book yeah even though in the book i'm completely open but it's my voice it's my because i'm because i'm vulgar because i'm my voice is like loud and unapologetic and on instagram i'm funny and even on days when i'm depressed i'm super glamorous on instagram and that's just what i do to survive and make my life a life worth living uh depression doesn't necessarily look like you're lying on the floor in your own vomit you know um but everyone was like appreciating I think we have this culture. I think it's part of like this whole like charter school grit thing. It's like they just really admire my resilience. Whereas I would like, I wanted to be admired for like the ability that I have to still have a sense of humor despite all of the ghosts that I've seen. What I mean, I think one of the things you touched on that I just want to say again because. I don't want it to get lost is that for people of color, women of color, queer people of color, our, our artists, our creators, our creatives, that what is so incredible is that you can be alive and experience the trauma and the pain and the joy and the humor in the world and process it and feel those things and be able to then turn around and share that with the world through your art. And I think, you know, like what you're getting at is that this idea of strong becomes this euphemism for all those other things that you're actually experiencing and that you're actually living through. And people say strong because all they see is a person of color. And that's what we're told about people of color because their lives must be so miserable and there's nothing, you know, this is a thing that we, <laughs> I talk about often, um, especially with, with black writers that I've had on, which is like, I love being black. I wouldn't change being black for anything. That doesn't mean that being black doesn't come with all sorts of baggage and all sorts of challenges and racism and obstacles in my way. But like the joy of walking into a room and seeing another black person and having an inside, you know, joke or relationship just because there is that shared experience, like that's a beautiful blessing. And so I think that's sort of what you're getting at is that there's all these layers that go into being a creative and an artist and a woman and a queer person and all of these things. And to be distilled down to being strong is just, that's just so not, that's not it, you know, and like that's missing so much of who you are and what you create. And I think that people who read your book with, I mean, any level of criticism, I guess, would <laughs> would see that there's a lot more than just strength in what you do. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished, and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. 
The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I have a question for you. So Lupita and I recorded our conversation before this conversation. So I'm going to ask something that I, we talk about extensively on the episode, but I do sort of want to get your your insight, which is we talk about this idea of journalism or like reporting and being objective and what that is in place for and who that is in place for. And I won't do a whole rehashing of our conversation about it because people will listen to it later. So my big question for you is you get involved with your with your subjects. You get involved with the people in your story. And that's very clear from the beginning. You tell us from the beginning. Um, you talk about translating and kind of interpreting versus doing a direct word-for-word -word translation and the reasons that you do that. But I am curious if if there was a struggle for you to write your book in that way, knowing that it's a kind of a memoir meets nonfiction. And if there was if there was conversations between you and yourself or you and Chris or or you and your publisher about how to do that in a way that felt truthful, but also um, true to the spirit of what, what you created with your book. Yeah. Christopher Jackson and I had like ferocious, passionate fights where we just like threw dishware in our shared <laughs> kitchen, like on the walls. And we were like, but how much magical realism I could use. We ended up having no dishes. <laughs> Um, well, 
it was like, you know, um, I write a lot of things and I know what to write for whom and for what. So like some pieces, this was a unique book. Like generally when I write my essays, I use like a 99 cent store Joan Didion voice. <laughs> And they're like very like beautiful and like long. And my first sentence is like four sentences long and it has like six clauses. Like this book was like very punky, very inspired by like Gertrude Stein and Eileen Miles and like, you know, Meg White's drumming. It was meant to be rock and roll. That was that was the point. And I also wanted it to be an homage to um, the genre of testimonio in Latin American literature, um, which is a way of telling a journalistic story through storytelling and seeing reporting as a technique and seeing uh, fictional fiction as a technique. I didn't make anything up in the book um, because it was important for me that the reporting was believed, that people's stories were believed, because if someone was like, she just made up a talking elephant, the the stories of the 9-11 um, Ground Zero workers would not be believed, and then I would be doing harm to those people because I had a vanity interest in making up a fictional detail. So it's like pretty clear when I make things up. Right. Like some things are dreams, some things are literally impossible in a world with gravity and physics. Um, some things are just like exaggerated to the point of being like absurd. Like it's just very clear when I use like a fictional technique in the book and we made it that way. Um, I think that part of what I was trying to do with the book is create the effect of trauma brain and what it was like for an undocumented person to live through the first years of the Trump administration, where real and not real and memory and nightmare and repressed memory and real memory and collective memory all merge together and, um, and deliver that in a book that is also based on reporting. And that was not possible because people would not have believed the stories. And also because Chris felt uneasy with that. And so um, I took his advice and I ultimately feel comfortable with the advice that I followed. And my book was reviewed in the New York Times by Caitlin Dickerson, who is the immigration reporter for the New York Times. And she uh, spoke about the magical realism techniques that I used. She understood why I used them. And she thought my reporting was impeccable. Um, my book was reviewed in The New Yorker, not reviewed, but recommended The New Yorker by Jonathan Blitzer, who is The New Yorker's immigration reporter. And he also thought that the access I had to subjects and the reporting that I did was incredible, but also liked the fictional techniques. People who are smart and open-minded about art um, and who are immigration reporters like Tina Vasquez, uh, like they, they love the book and they get it. And um, children and, and like my audience, Latinos, they have, they have gotten it. Like I know that there's this like one white guy who wrote on this blog that um, 
that I made stuff up and that I, um, I don't know, that I like bragged about killing a baby or something. And like, I did, I did one of those things, but lying was not one of them. Um, so, you know, in terms of journalism, like I can't be a journalist because I am a, I'm a writer, writer, like, if I have to write a sentence in which I cannot show off how pretty I can write, I would kill myself. So like, I can't be a journalist. Um, my genre is personal essay with like diligent reporting and I am diligent about my reporting. Um, and I think that we are living in a time where we have to, we have to experiment with genre like this is what happens after World War One, after the A bombs. Like genre changed, their schools changed. Like the fact that there isn't something changing right now is wrong. Yeah. We're being lazy. We're being complacent. We're on social media, writing threads and fighting with each other. Right. Um, we should be really thinking about how we can be experimenting with genre so that we can reflect the the psychic reality that we live in right now and honestly the um i think collective trauma is something that we need to capture um you know i was when i was writing um not this book but when i was writing essays about the undocumented people and the pandemic i was reading a lot of primo levy um uh who wrote about the holocaust uh and survivors and survivors guilt and I thought, like, his periodic table, uh, like, that was wonderful experimentation with the genre and with form. And he was able to tell, like, a, a painful, beautiful story in a really creative way. And I think um, I gave a talk to um, a bunch of undocumented uh, writers the other day. And I was like, there's like 75 of you here. If you write 75 memoirs about being undocumented, you're doing it wrong. That's not what we need. Like, like do something different. Do some, like do something creative, write a graphic novel, like, like, like do something that only you could do, yeah. you know? Um, so I feel pretty comfortable about that. And um, I think objectivity is a lie. Yeah. We talk about that at length, so I'll, I'm going to leave that there because we do get into that um, on our episode. One of the things also that Lupita told me I had to ask you about, she said, you have to find out for me because she read an advanced reader copy of The Undocumented Americans, and we always talk about the cover, and the cover of your book changed from when the advanced reader copies went out to the cover that I have on my finished copy. So I'm interested if you can talk about how and why the cover changed. The cover changed because of the controversy around the American Dirt cover, which had barbed wire in it. I didn't have an issue with my cover. Um, I didn't want to have anything to do with the with American Dirt or the American Dirt cover. So, like, but the barbed wire itself. So I can comment on that. I thought if we had used my, I prefer the cover that we have now because uh, there's obviously an obsession with documents. Mm -hmm. And I also uh, made clear that I wanted there to be bloodstains on the documents, because even if you do achieve legalization, um, 
there's there's blood on your hands there's blood on all of our hands and i want to make sure that we're all complicit um in this system and so i think that it it much more captures my my thoughts on comprehensive immigration reform yeah, yeah. you know like like daca has blood on yeah. its hands um but the original cover like I don't know. Like there were a lot of covers that I didn't like and they gave this one to me. And the reason I liked it is because I write a lot about um, plants and animals that survive in inhospitable climates in the desert, in the Sonoran desert, especially, and in the deepest, darkest fathoms of the sea. And these are animals that and, and plants that have evolved to need very little water, very little food, uh, very little sunlight, very little rainfall, like whatever it is, they have spikes, they have thorns, mm -hmm. they can like a lot of them look grotesque. Right. And um and I think and I really relate a lot to them. Like I have a tattoo that says mutant and um and, you know, if, if someone calls me an alien, an illegal alien, like, I don't mind. I don't want any, them calling any other immigrant that. But I don't mind because, like, I feel like I am just like this, like, like, you know, like I'm I'm a weirdo and I have managed to to thrive and evolve in the most inhospitable of climates. Like the land wants to expel me. Like they're trying to, like right now, like the num the number one deaths of, of in COVID are Latinos. Like they are, and the re and they're reopening everything because they want us dead. You know, like and I'm surviving. Right. You know, and I feel, and and so I th that was the flower, and the barbed wire just represents. I mean, the barbed wire around. I mean, just historically the symbolism of, you know, around a lot of meatpacking plants, around detention centers, around the places where the children separated from their parents at the border were. Um, and, you know, um, I really, uh, I hate monarch butterflies being associated with migrants, um, but I really like crows being associated with migrants because Crows um, never forget. They're very smart, and they also have a thirst for revenge. And a lot of people, um, when they don't shoot crows, they try to get them away by um, putting barbed wire up. And so you see a lot of pictures of like, like is like industrial towns with a lot of barbed wire and crows just sitting on the barbed wire. So that's what the barbed wire went, meant to me. Obviously, to Janine Cummings, the barbed wire was uh, pure aesthetics and um, was a concentration camp reference for her and an occasion to decorate her table and her manicure. Right. Um, and I didn't feel like I had to explain what it meant to me or to engage in any kind of communication with her. Um, so I just changed my cover. Yeah. We're going to transition slightly into your process a little bit more though I don't really want to because I want to just keep talking about your book, but I'm going to 
I'm going to do the thing that I always do, which is talk about your writing and then I'm going to become obsessed with that. So what sort of stuff were you reading, listening to, watching, et cetera, consuming while you were writing The Undocumented Americans? I think I am going to be your least favorite uh, guest ever because the answer is mostly nothing. (laughs) Um, I didn't want to be influenced by um, anything. So first of all, um, I am a very anxious person, so I can no longer really watch TVs or movies unless um, they are action and they star Charlize Theron. Okay. And, um, or The Lord of the Rings. Okay. Or Star Wars. Yeah. Basically, that's it. Okay. Basically, that's all I can watch. I did not read. Uh, I mean, I read, I, I reread a lot of things. I didn't read new things. Okay. Um, I reread like Slouching Towards Bethlehem. I read reread the White Album. I reread uh, A Small Place by Jamaica Kincaid. Uh, I reread um, parts of the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, Gertrude Stein. I was briefly an inpatient at a psychiatric hospital, and that's the book I took with me. So it, it is meaningful to me in multiple ways. I read Parts of Inferno by Eileen Miles. And uh, that's it. Those were things to just like get me into the into the place I wanted to be in. Um, And then I did listen to a lot of music. I mostly listened to Kendrick Lamar and the White Stripes. And towards the end of it, I listened to a lot of Beyonce's Homecoming Mm -hmm. live album, but. I would say that, um, oh, sometimes I would feel like I would feel lost. Like as a person, I would be like, I don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. So I'd listen to a lot of the music I listened to in high school. So a lot of like early 2000s hip hop, like J-Lo with Ja Rule, that kind of thing. Yes, I'm real. Um, Yeah, I'm real. (laughs) Or I'd listen to like, you know, like the Strokes. It was that, it was that era. Yeah. So I would listen to a lot of music that had good songwriting, but I would say the thing I listened to most consistently was Kendrick. And then, yeah, it was Kendrick. Okay. And then how about, how do you like to write? Where are you? Do you write every day? Do you write many hours? Do you have snacks and beverages? Do you have rituals? Like kind of set the scene on how you like to write, what that experience part is like. Well, when my deadline is very far away, I'm like, I just like pretend like it matters. So I'm like, I will, I want my desk to be all white and I will drink only matcha and I will do my skincare first. And I will be like, I will pretend I'll have a beauty routine. I'll pretend I'm like Bella Hadid (laughs) doing one of those Vogue videos and be like, this is my morning routine. And, um, and then when like my deadline is like a week away, I'll realize that like none of that shit actually matters. And all you have to do is like fucking write. Oh, and then while I'm pretending to be Bella Hadid, I'll be like, and here's what I do. In the morning, I take an Adderall. By the time that wears off, I will be in a bad mood. So I will need a drink. Then in the evening, I will have a cup of tea. Then after that, I will have a glass of water. Like I just pretend I'm like hacking my system. Okay. But then like a week before deadline, I am like, I get into a one piece bathing suit 
I sit on my bed. I like put my hair up. This is what I'm in right now. Okay. I, I'm on deadline for, for an essay. Um, I just put my hair up. I'm in a one piece bathing suit. I'm on my bed. I print out what I've been writing and I just write because there ain't nothing but you on the page. Mm -hmm. Everything else is just pretentious bullshit that you tell yourself to pretend that you're an artist because we all grew up watching, like looking at those pictures of like authors at their desks. Here is Nabokov with his butterflies. It's like all bullshit. It's all, it's just you and a page, right? It's just you and a page. <laughs> I love that. What word can you never spell correctly on the first try? Recommend. That's my word. Yes. It comes up more often than you would think. I mean, I have like a hundred thousand words that I can't spell right, but that's my go-to. And I always get excited when other people say it. What did you do to celebrate the publication of your book? Did you do anything? I don't believe in celebrating things that are obligations. Okay. Okay. So I'll expand. Yeah, go ahead. I was contractually obligated to write this book. Right. I was paid to write this book. It was an obligation to my community to write this book. The book came out and I told Chris Jackson not to send me flowers. And he respects me. And so he didn't send me flowers. And the book came out. And the only thing I cared about that day was the New York Times review. Mm -hmm. If it was good, it was good. And if it was bad, my, I convinced my partner that we could get a French bulldog puppy. Um, because it was going to be win-win. And I, I slept late, and then my partner came in, and she said, it's good. And I said, how good? She said, it's really good. I said, did they call me the voice of the, my generation? <laughs> that was a joke. And she said, no. I said, then it's not good enough. And then I went back to sleep. But then I read it, and um, I like Caitlin Dickerson. I admire her a lot, and it meant a lot to me. And then I turned my phone off for the rest of the day. I didn't want to hear anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to be by myself. I think I like did my nails. Um, I just had a quiet day. And, um, and I just sort of feel that way about things, you know, I, maybe I'm just a bitch, but sort of like, unless a kid like has a learning disability it's like when they finish kindergarten and parents throw them a party. It's like, were you supposed to drop out of kindergarten? <laughs> like, was I supposed to break right. contract and not write my book and give back my advance? Right. Like, I wrote a book and it got a glowing review in the New York Times. Was I supposed to buy a bottle of champagne? Like, am I a monster? Like, no, you're not a monster, but I mean, I don't know. I think writing a book is an incredible thing. And so I, I, as someone who doesn't write, I don't have that experience of like, this is, you know, something I, I'm contractually, contractually obligated to do. So to me, I would at least have had, had a cocktail or something, but that's just me. Uh, I, I mean, I'm always drunk. Okay, great. But so like, as long as you did something. <laughs> like what meant to me was when people started reading the book and I started getting DMs from readers being like, this is the book I've been waiting my entire life for. There's a reader that I have who is like actually a big fan and we're quite friendly. She's adorable. She's in her 70s. Her father was a bracero. Um, he was one of the first Mexican-Americans who came over 
he was one of the first Mexicans who came over to the United States, hired by the United States government to work in agriculture. Mm. Like this is historic. And she was like, I grew up with nothing like this. I've been waiting my entire life for this. Mm. Like those things mean something to me. Sure. Of course, the New York Times review meant something to me. Uh, it, it was a dream, but like it was not a date to celebrate me, you know? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. It's just. No, that makes sense. That makes a hundred. That makes so much sense. For people who have read your book and love your book, what sort of books or what are a few books you might recommend to them? Um, not necessarily the same kind of book, but a book that you feel like is in converse, conversation with the work that you do. I would recommend two books. One book I have not read because I know the author and the author and I are friends, but um, there are similar themes in our books. And uh, we made a pact to never read each other's books because we it, uh, it would uh, our books would destroy each other okay. and, and in the best way possible, in the worst way possible. Okay. But uh, if you are not a traumatized, undocumented immigrant but are looking for great literature about the undocumented experience written by amazing authors. He has an MFA. He's a poet. Um, Children of the Land by Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. Okay. Um, and um, Jenny Zhang, who is a poet and a writer, uh, wrote a book called Sour Heart, short stories. Uh, they take place in New York about um, sort of revolving around a young um Chinese girl who grows up in poverty and people come in and out of her life. And it's like a very, you know, I grew up poor New York and uh, it just, it's just very real. And it also talks about um, one of the themes in my book, which is about like the oppressive nature of love between an immigrant parent and their child. And a book I think people should read right now during the pandemic is William Maxwell's They Came Like Swallows. William Maxwell was the longtime fiction editor for The New Yorker. He edited Salinger, among other people. And it's a book about the Spanish flu. It's very short. It's very lovely. It has a sad ending, but it does remind you that life goes on. Okay. I have two more questions for you. How did you know you were done writing your book, given the fact that it is, you know, I mean, I'm going to say current events, but I don't really mean current events because this is immigration has been a part of the American stories as long as there's been America. But I guess right now it feels like your book is talking about something that is current and with the Trump administration being the impetus and him still being in office at this time. How did you know that you had covered what you needed to cover and that you were done writing? Because I feel like there are so many stories out there and there and these people that you cover their lives and your own life is still developing. Chris gave me a final deadline okay. and I would never disobey him. <laughs> okay. Then my last question is if you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Chris Jackson in front of me. I want to see his facial expressions as he reads it. <laughs> You're amazing. Carla, thank you so much for everyone at home. You have two weeks from today to finish reading this book. If you haven't yet, I'll be discussing it with Lupita. The book is called The Undocumented Americans. You can get it now wherever you get your books. Carla does the audiobook narration as well. So if you want to hear more of her beautiful voice, you can listen to the book. You could also listen and read at the same time. I know some of you people do that. Carla, thank you so much for being here. 
you're welcome and thank you everyone for having me and for listening to my voice remember uh it's not every day that you can hear from queer icon <laughs> carla cornejo Vicencio. you're welcome and everybody else we will see you in the stacks Thank you to Carla for being our guest today. We will be discussing Carla's incredible book, The Undocumented Americans for the Stacks Book Club on September 30th with our guest, Lupita Aquino. Please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com.